You're listening to One Decision, the show that looks at how choices made by those in power or influence can shape all our lives. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. Someone who has had a front row seat to some of those very decisions and turning points in our modern history is Richard Haas, an assistant to President George H.W. Bush, who then went on to work closely with Colin Powell in the second Bush administration. Haas, who was and remains opposed to the decision to go to war in Iraq, left politics behind, but not his fascination with how it shapes world events. Now in 2023, we arrive at a time where America's self-appointed and so far mostly accepted status as global policeman appears to hang in the balance of its own bitter divisions over what its role in the world should be. This reflection, this reassessment, could hardly come at a more critical time, as global threats requiring global cooperation and leadership posing growing threats to all of us. As the Bolsheviks apparently said, there are decades where nothing happens, and then weeks where decades happen. What does Richard Haas fear in this coming tumultuous decade? I want to start off, obviously we're going to talk a lot about the Russia-Ukraine war and about growing competition with China, but I wanted to start off following up on an article you wrote recently for Foreign Affairs on how you believe we're entering a dangerous decade. I'll quote from your piece. You said, heightened geopolitical competition makes it even more difficult to produce the cooperation demanded by new global problems. And the deteriorating international environment further fuels geopolitical tensions, all at a time that the United States is weakened and distracted. Now, something that my co-host, uh, Sir Richard Dearlove, has mentioned a lot on this podcast has been the decline of Pax Americana, that post-1945 period, largely of peace under the global dominance of the United States. That's not to say there haven't been wars. Of course, there have been plenty of wars in, in the last 80 years, but there have been far fewer than at any other point in our recorded history. And many analysts have been saying for a few years now, ever since the tail end of the Obama administration, really, that Pax Americana is coming to an end, some equating it with the decline of the West and others with an emergence of of rising powers to challenge American dominance. What do you believe? Are we entering a new era where peace is not going to be the status quo that we in the West have enjoyed since the end of the great wars in the last century. I mean, I I heard you on the CFR podcast recently reminding listeners that order is not the natural state of things. Well, if I may quote myself, order is not the natural state of things. Uh, Order tends to come about and be maintained for several reasons. Things like balances of power, deterrence, over the last 75, 80 years, it had more than a little bit to do with the uh, the leadership and role of the United States. You know, all things being equal, you, you'd be hard-pressed to make the case that the next 75 or 80 years going forward will be as stable as the last 75 or 80. It's not, uh, I would say, it's not at all likely. I would say we're in for a time of much greater turbulence. And there's, there's three issues. One is the revival of great power politics. And we've seen it, obviously, with a vengeance in Europe. We could see it in other parts of the world. And the corollary to that is there's 
a much wider distribution of, of capacity than there's ever been before. Uh, large powers, medium powers, non-state actors. There's uh, many more hands have their hands on uh, power. Secondly, it's it's the global issues uh, and the rather large gap between these challenges like climate or infectious disease or what have you uh, and global arrangements meant to deal with them. The gap is large and in many cases getting larger. And then thirdly, as you alluded to, uh, the problems here inside the United States. And there are legitimate questions about our willingness and our ability to play the sort of outsized role going forward that we've played uh, for much of the post-World War II uh, era. And it has weakened over the last decade, give or take. It used to be that domestic developments here didn't make that much of a difference, that one could safely assume that even if there were to be a rotation of power, the outcomes would not be wildly different. Well, now we can't assume that anymore. The rotations of power could bring, tra- could bring with them transformation uh, of policy. So you know, I would simply say that if you, if you add up what's going on in the world and what's going on here, if you're not concerned, you're probably not, not paying close attention. Right. I I do want to ask you about American division at home, um, because it is the subject of your latest book. But since you mentioned deterrence, I wanted to ask you further on that, because you also wrote recently that nuclear proliferation uh, is a growing concern of yours. I mean, the obvious example, Ukraine giving up its weapons at the end of the Cold War. It's been invaded twice since it's done that. Other countries are obviously going to be watching the US and the West being so cautious over what it does in Ukraine for fear of provoking Russia because of Russia's possession of nuclear weapons. It's an increasingly obvious security insurance that many countries might be considering for themselves right now, right? Well, I think there's lots of reasons that we could be entering what I would call a new nuclear age or era. One is the one, Julia, you just mentioned. Uh, the fact that the United States has acted with caution in Ukraine and the, the assistance we've extended has been what you might describe as indirect rather than direct. We haven't gotten involved ourselves. Uh, I expect that is not a lesson lost on China. We are seeing the ramping up of the Chi- of Chinese nuclear capabilities. I expect in the hope that if there ever were to be a crisis involving Taiwan, the Chinese would hope that their nuclear arsenal, if it were much larger than it currently is, might give the United States pause. So I think that's that's you know, one possible uh, takeaway. Then even apart from that, you mentioned Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons and getting invaded twice. Uh, Libya and Iraq are not advertisements for giving up nuclear weapons, given what subsequently happened there to the leaderships. Now you've got also North Korea continuing to build up its its nuclear arsenal and its delivery systems. And for the first time, you have a real debate in South, in South Korea about whether it ought to have its own independent nuclear deterrent or whether it can count on a, what's, you know, what's widely known as extended deterrence on the American umbrella. And the fact that Mr. Trump, when he was president, was talking about withdrawing American troops from South Korea has fueled that concern in South Korea that they face a growing threat from the North. China's not doing anything to help, and the United States may not be there to help. 
Uh, so they're rethinking their, their nuclear posture. Obviously, Iran has gotten very close to nuclear weapons capability. It's probably become what's known in the trade as a threshold nuclear uh, state, very, very close to having many, if not all, of the prerequisites uh, in place and could probably have deployable nuclear weapons in a matter, say, of, of weeks. So you, you add all that up, and if Iran were to go down that path, who knows how several of its neighbors might respond, including Saudi Arabia or Turkey uh, or Egypt or, or others. So yes, uh, I think we're in an age where, to some extent, nonproliferation has been discredited, or at least questioned, and we've got a lot of dynamics and so much of non-proliferation policy over the decades has depended upon confidence in security guarantees, above all from the United States. And if that confidence were to erode, then I think we could quite possibly find ourselves in a new era of proliferation. You've been president of the CFR for 20 years now. And in that time, we've seen U.S. foreign policy shift from the post 9-11 era in recent years to a gradual returning of the, or perhaps a, a new kind of Cold War era. There have been some very visible failures in US foreign policy that have had a lot of knock-on events. And all of these have had an impact in America's standing overseas. There's Afghanistan, there's Iraq, there's Libya, all of those spring to mind. And it's clear that when you listen to the grievances of America's critics, these failures have, in many people's eyes, have undermined US influence and credibility, as well as in the eyes of non-interventionists back at home. I mean, a staggering sum of money has been spent on many of these interventions and on US foreign aid and an attempt to grow soft power. Um, There is, of course, the price of American lives that have been lost as well. I mean, would you say that all of these countries have been left worse off after American intervention or interference? And and how damaging has this been to US influence overseas and the danger that this has given how the US has been a stabilizing power for so many years? Well, I think many countries are better off as a result of American intervention. Certainly Ukraine is. Uh, Ukraine would not exist as a sovereign entity were it not for American leadership and assistance. Iraq, for all of its difficulties, is arguably better off than it was under Saddam Hussein. That's not necessarily a justification of either the decision to undertake the Iraq war or how it was carried out. But I think objectively, you could make the case it's better off. Afghanistan, in some ways, is going back to what it was. The new Taliban are pretty much the same as the old Taliban. Uh, What makes it so frustrating is I didn't think it was inevitable that we would end up where we are, but that's a a different conversation. And most other places, I think... uh, American intervention or involvement has been quite salutary. In the Balkans, I think it helped with NATO, uh, obviously our alliances uh, and so forth. So I, I, you know, what we did in Colombia under Plan Colombia and building up the apparatus of a state. So again, we've made real mistakes. The 2003 Iraq War being first uh, among them, the Vietnam War. So I'm not going to argue we haven't made uh significant errors in the course of our foreign policy. But more often than not, I actually am prepared to argue that what the United States has done has has brought more benefits than costs. It's interesting you say that. And I, I want to ask how maybe perhaps US policy, not so much in military foreign interventions, but other areas of US policy has affected 
what you might describe as the loyalty of of certain allies. And an obvious example is India's sort of sustained grievances on things like American funding for Pakistan. That's something they talk about all the time and how that's transpired to Indians being less than reliable allies on certain things like UN votes. And and just quickly, Saudi Arabia is, is another example. They've got serious grievances with the US over things like the Iran deal. And we've seen the likely ramifications of that and, and things like the recent OPEC uh, decisions last year that saw the Saudis actually siding, uh, siding with the Russians on things like oil production and, and things like that. Where to begin? Look, there's things that you know, the United States has done that have caused you know anger or whatever you want to describe it. Uh, there's other things that we've done, like PEPFARS, the HIV/AIDS drug program, which has been, which was fantastically effective and remains fantastically popular, particularly in in Africa. Some of our errors are things we didn't do more of, for example, in making mRNA vaccines available widely around the world in the case of COVID-19. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia. Sure, there was unhappiness with the previous admit uh, with the both the Obama administration and now the Biden administration over uh, diplomacy with Iran. There was American unhappiness with them over human rights issues, the war in Yemen. So the United States and Saudi Arabia have uh, drifted apart, not you know, not beyond bridging, but we've drifted apart. There's not a lot of confidence that either has in the other. That's just a fact of life. Our interests, you know, we're not allies. We're sometimes partners, we're sometimes not. And I, it's simply a fact of life that this is a relationship that is less based, of, it's not based upon common values. Let's, let's be serious here. We're very, you know, we're fundamentally different kinds of societies. The question is whether we have sufficient common interests. And we'll see. It's quite possible that there might be some interests, common interests vis-a-vis Iran. The Iran deal is effectively dead because of... Uh, Iranian military support for Russia because of what Iran's done on the nuclear side, because of the protests. So that issue has essentially taken care of itself. So we'll see what happens going forward. But my guess is U.S.-Saudi relations because of Iran will probably be slightly closer going forward than they've been uh, under the, not necessarily during the Trump administration, but during the Obama and the uh, Biden administrations. What you said about India, I, I just don't see it. Uh, you know, it's ironic. You mentioned that India is unhappy with what we give to Pakistan. Pakistan's even more unhappy with what we don't give to Pakistan. There's a serial frustration from Pakistan's point of view with American foreign policy. We're seen as uh, insufficiently consistent and generous. I think the U.S.-India relationship has certain limits, not because of USAID to Pakistan so much as because of uh, India's uh, protectionism, India's strategic hedging, uh, its desire to be somewhat non-aligned. Yes, there's unhappiness with our support for uh, historical support for for Pakistan, but also if the United States walked away from Pakistan, I'm not sure India would love the consequences of that either. But I, I think the problems in the U.S. First of all, I say the problems in the U.S.-India relationship are much fewer than they used to be. This is all things being equal, an improved relationship. And but I just think there's also a relationship with structural limits above all. Uh, India's own strategic posture. So I, I don't think it's really because of uh, the, it's a zero sum between what we do with Pakistan. I think it's much more to do with how India sees itself and sees the world. Going back to um, 
the US's allies, friendships, partnerships with countries uh, that do not share American values or, or, or interests. For example, something that has that always, always stuck in my mind is the huge amount of money that the US sends over to Egypt, uh, billions of dollars of military aid um, over the years, despite its military being continually accused of human rights violations. Um, although I should point out that I believe the Biden administration last year, they suspended last year's aid to Egypt, pending them clearing up their act. But but that's quite a recent change. Ethiopia, Pakistan, Uganda, and, and countries like that. And I, I name them because those three countries are among the 32 abstentions in the recent UN generally UN General Assembly vote calling for Russia to end the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Look, two things. One is there's always a tension in foreign policy between interests and values. And we don't have the luxury of simply carrying out a foreign policy predicated on values. We have interests with some of these countries. Could be humanitarian interests, could be strategic interests against terrorism, what have you. So, with a lot in the case of Egypt, you know, Egypt is the cornerstone of regional peace with Israel. Uh, you also have to look at the alternatives. If we don't support Egypt, are you likely to get something better? Well, I think we learned from the Arab Spring, probably not. As imperfect as the current state of affairs is, one can imagine far more imperfect states of affairs. That's that's why you know foreign policy is hard. Uh, the choices tend to be tend to be imperfect. That's what it is in in many of these cases. And also, I think you know we have to. It's funny. I was asked in another recent conversation a version of what you just asked me. Well, if these countries who we are helping don't support our stances, say on Ukraine, should we cut off all the aid? And you have to ask yourself: Would that leave you better off? I understand the temptation. We're frustrated. We're disappointed over how they vote or what have you. But again, we'd have to ask ourselves what other interests interests might be affected for the worse, and is uh, will that either get them to do the things we want them to do on Ukraine, and if not, what have we gained then by penalizing them? It might just be better to have a a, a limited, you know, an imperfect limited relationship rather than no relationship. You argued um, uh, that honey is better than vinegar uh aid versus sanctions you've done way too much um, research a... here this is very <laughs> this is a very unfair interview you've read too many of the things i've written over the years you should have won <laughs> um a lot of these countries are very happy to take american money but maintain that they cannot be bought i mean you meant you you said just now that there is a need to be practical with our expectations of of how our allies behave and countries we have relationships with so is it time for then for the us uh, and the, the model of western foreign policy via aid dispensations and things is it time for us to shift this expectation that aid does buy obedience for want of a better word well I think you set up a straw man here to be perfectly honest. I don't know anyone who thinks that aid buys obedience. It didn't during the height of the Cold War. It's unlikely to now. That's not the criteria. If anyone thinks aid is going to buy lasting obedience, they're, they're in the wrong line of work. Uh, it may simply, not even loyalty, it may simply alleviate certain conditions. It may get a certain government to do a certain thing on climate change, help them deal with refugees, help them deal with disease. Uh, it may help them deal with terrorism, but on 26 other issues, they may go a different way. I mean, it's it, most relationships now are not 
all or nothing and what you're describing. Most of the countries getting aid are more often than not part of the quote-unquote global south. And we're going to have more limited transactional relationships where we'll agree on some things, disagree on others, go our own ways on still other things. So, But I don't know anyone who sees aid as that powerful of a, of a tool. Sorry. Well, in, well, I mean, in, in that case, I mean, you're part of the reason why I set up a bit of a straw man question is, d- does that then not make it difficult to argue for continuing the vast sums of money that America sends overseas uh, to a lot of countries where that aid does not lead to a productive, cooperative relationship. I mean, we're dealing with a, with what appears to be a growing financial crisis. You've got lots of uh, voices back home calling for less American dollars to be spent overseas. Does that not make it harder for a lot of U.S. aid, which is really philanthropy rather than transactional, that does do good in the world, but doesn't really rebound into American interests? Well, a couple of things. One is you'll probably hear it from both uh, people on the right and people on the left. And it's not new. So even during the Cold War, we heard a lot about ungrateful you know, aid recipients. Uh, and people would say, we gave this country or this government this amount of aid, and they voted against us in the UN, or they did this or that. That'll happen. And again, it goes back to what we were just discussing. With aid, you don't purchase loyalty or necessarily even an overall relationship. It's it's much more transactional. And you may do some of these things, for example, to give a country aid so it has a stronger uh, ability to meet its obligations under the international health regulations. Well, that's good for them, but it's also good for us if we want to you know, limit the possibility of certain types of infectious disease outbreaks. Or again, we may disagree with them on a hundred different issues, but if they use the aid in ways, say, to fight terrorists, it still might be worth it. So it tends to be a popular issue, and I expect I've already seen one of the Republican candidates talk about aid. But if you add all of it up, it is negligible in terms of America's deficit and debt. So you can, you know, there's always these polls where they ask Americans, how much do we spend on foreign aid? And people think it's this enormous percentage of the budget or our GDP. And uh, the last I checked, it's something like uh, development aid used to be about a half penny on the dollar. Most of the aid strategically goes to the Israels and the Egypts and a a few countries like that. And the development aid gets scattered around the world. And again, a lot of it is not if not, if you will, quote unquote, philanthropy, to use your word, a lot of it's simply enlightened self-interest. It, it promotes conditions that are that are good for us at the same time. You mentioned the global south, something that I have been really, really interested in and was quite surprised really last year was that the U.S., did not carry the global south um, in terms of joining sanctions against Russia last year. Aside from Europe, there weren't really any countries supporting the US in the sanctions uh, against Russia. Many countries belonging to the global south are still really not wanting to get involved in in anything to do with Russia and Ukraine, despite the fact that what Russia did by invading Ukraine was go against what has been, you know, the one of the most sacrosanct rules of international law, which is you cannot change borders by force. Were you surprised 
by that last year when when you saw all of those countries abstaining and not joining sanctions against Russia? Were you surprised that the that the US managed to get so many European allies, such as Switzerland and and, and Germany on board? And, and what can the US do to reach out to those parts of the world who don't feel the need to respond when America stood up and said Russia cannot be allowed to get away with this? A couple of questions in there. I was positively, I don't know if we're surprised, but pleased, lightly surprised at how well we did in uh, forging a common approach in Europe. And I think that uh, I expect Mr. Putin was also surprised, but probably not as pleased as I am by, uh, by that. So I think that's all good news. In the rest of the world, no, I, no, I had very modest expectations. One of, the good, one of the good things about being a pessimist is you keep your expectations low. And then when imperfect things happen, you're not wildly disappointed because you never expected much better than that in the first place. Uh, a lot of the world I didn't think was going to side with us because they weren't sure how the war would come out. Indeed, most of them thought Russia would do just fine. And they probably asked themselves, why should we alienate Russia or China? Since China side with Russia from the beginning, why should we alienate them over something that's inevitable? So it didn't surprise me there. A lot of them you know, were interested in access to energy the, or military equipment or both. Didn't surprise me there. I also think the Biden administration did itself no favors by making this a, or by framing the contest as one between democracies and authoritarian systems. A lot of countries in the global south, whatever else they are, are not democracies. So I think we ought to, we would have been wiser to have kept the focus on what you were talking about, which was the inadmissibility or unacceptability of acquiring territory through the use of force, rather than making this somehow a, a matter of democracies versus non-democracies. So I think we framed it wrong, and that, that made a difficult uh, foreign policy effort even, even more difficult. But I think uh, all things, even if we had done it better or done it right, it still would have been difficult to line up much of the world. Do you still, uh, do you still have faith in the United Nations as a vehicle for... <laughs> I, mean, I want to disagree with your question. <laughs> to say that I still have faith suggests I have faith. I do not have faith in the United Nations. Sorry. I, uh, I don't particularly take the United Nations seriously, which is just to be clear, I'm, you know, I take other forms of multilateralism seriously, but there's, there's no person listening to this who would design this UN Security Council if he or she were starting from scratch. It bears almost no relationship to contemporary reality. And then in situations like Ukraine, how can the United Nations be valuable if one of the protagonists has the veto? And if the closest partner of that protagonist also has a veto? So no, I don't take the UN uh, seriously either as a vent. It's certainly not a serious venue for action, except in very, very special circumstances. And it's not a, it's not a necessary venue for diplomacy. We have other venues for that. So no. The UN is not my uh, favorite institution. And, and why is that? Is that because Russia has a seat at, at the military council? Or, you know, you mentioned the veto system, which is is problematic in itself. But I mean, what's, what's the main reason? Oh, it's a hundred different reasons. Oh, it's a long conversation. Any number of reasons. One is the General Assembly bears no relationship to the distribution or configuration of power in the world. On the Security Council, you have five countries with permanent vetoes inconceivable to me that we would choose those five countries today if we were starting from scratch, that you have Britain and France, uh, but you don't have India, 
uh, or or Germany or Japan. It just makes absolutely uh, no sense, you know, what's what whatsoever. Then there's the veto. There's the hypocrisy of all the human rights organizations. Now, I don't have a lot of time for the UN. Again, I'm all in favor of multilateralism, but effective multilateralism. The UN is basically a manifestation of ineffective multilateralism. Would would a, a current United Kingdom not make the the crop of of members of of a Richard Haas designed Security Council post Brexit? Um, are we are we now a speck in the field of the diplomacy I, uh, on the international stage? <laughs> oh dear, the last time I. Uh, See, Julia, you put me in a very <laughs> awkward position because the last time I made this argument, I received a phone call from Her Majesty's ambassador <laughs> and she was less than happy with me. And uh, my reaction was, I guess my, my I just lost any chance of a knighthood. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't go down. But no, I mean, quite honestly, uh, I would probably, though, Brexit is complicated. I would have thought to modernize it as a European seat made more sense. Uh, and I would have probably, I would have put Japan on the Security Council, probably India. I would have a modernized Security Council. I'm not sure I'd have an independent Britain or France, but that, w- that will just get me now in trouble with your <laughs> listeners and I'll pay a price for that comment. So that, was, that wasn't very fair. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll edit it out with the final conversation. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, that's interesting. because oh, So how about NATO then? How have the last 12 months sort of affected how you feel uh, about NATO? Remember about a year or two ago, President Macron described NATO as brain dead? doesn't look so brain dead now. NATO looks pretty good. Uh, indeed, NATO is one of the big positive surprises and winners of the war. It's been revitalized. And, you know, with the end of the Cold War, NATO was an organization looking for a mission. Well, NATO's found its mission, and its mission is the same mission it had during the Cold War. It's dealing with what was then Soviet, now it's Russian power. So, Plus, you know, I thought President Biden had a really good line in a speech the other day, and uh, I think it was Warsaw, where he said Putin was hoping for the what? Uh, what was it? The Finlandization of NATO, and instead he got the NATOization of Finland. Uh, so NATO's a a big gainer in this uh, war, and I think it reflects the fact that we've moved from when you move from Trump to Biden, you move from America first to alliance first. And we conduct our policy in Europe very much with and through allies, just as we do in Asia with or the so-called Indo-Pacific with and through allies and partners there, principally Japan, South Korea and others, Australia. So, no, I think uh, NATO, it's good that NATO exists. And it's I would think it's one way or another. There's going to be security commitments or guarantees extended either from NATO or from a subset of NATO countries to Ukraine. So NATO, I think. Uh, for the foreseeable future will be instrumental to uh, European security. The uh, the British Foreign Minister, James Cleverly, at the UN in late February, he said in a speech, Putin cannot and must not win in Ukraine because what's at stake on the battlefield is the international order itself. I don't know if you heard his full speech, but I wanted to ask just on just on that sentence alone, is is that hyperbole? And I mean, what is the international order exactly? Is it another way of expressing Western 
hegemony. I mean, there are plenty of countries who are entirely ambivalent about preserving this idea of the, quote, international order. I mean... And you mentioned it before. To the extent there's any norm or rule about how international relations ought to be conducted, the most basic and the most widely respected or embraced is the idea that uh, territory ought not to be acquired through force. So, you know, that's not sufficient for order, but it's it's impossible to imagine order without that. So I do think that's a lot at stake. I think what the foreign secretary's comments, though, don't answer is exactly what do we mean by winning? Does it does winning require that Ukraine go back to the 1991 lines? Or are there other possible definitions of winning and so forth? And that's a that's probably a conversation for another day in another format. But but I and I think we've already you know done a pretty good job of buttressing that basic norm of international order, but we have to make sure that doesn't change. I mean, we have to essentially make good on what President Biden was trying to signal by his trip to Ukraine the other day, which is that time does not work for uh, Mr. Putin, that time is not on his side, uh, that even though he's had a bad year, that year two or year three might not be better for him. We want to make sure that Putin reluctantly concludes at some point that time is not his friend. And that'll be the day that that diplomacy has a chance of working. We spoke to Robert Gates last year. And when we asked him what his number one security threat for the United States was, uh, whether it was Russia or China or AI or climate change or whatever, he said the number one security threat he thought was the square mile between the capital and uh, and the White House, this idea that U.S. instability is is such a severe threat to global security and stability. I mean, do you believe that really is the case more so than climate change or AI or? disinformation. Uh, what about Russia, China, and, and, and other entities that believe that they should be the superpower and, and not the United States? Mr. Gates, full disclosure, is a close friend and is a wise man. And he and I agree 100% on this. Indeed, the first paragraph of my new book begins with this anecdote, not involving Bob, but I, I often go out to speak about the world, and I'm always asked, what keeps you up at night? Is it climate change or Russia or China or what have you? And I always say, yeah, I worry about all those, but what I really worry about most is us. And either we will have the unity and ability to get things done so we have a, a decent chance to deal with those external challenges, or we won't. So I actually think the, the biggest national security question mark over the United States is the United States. And it's whether our political system can operate, whether we can avoid uh, politically inspired violence uh, on a significant scale. And the fact that I have to ask those questions is in and of itself somewhat startling, certainly worrisome. But that's where we are. And that's why here I am. uh, I'm a kind of what foreign policy guy. I've been president of the Council on Foreign Relations for 20 years. I spent my entire career working on foreign policy issues in the U.S. government or uh, at think tanks in London or, or the United States. Um, but here I am writing about American citizenship and American democracy. So, yes, I, uh, I think this has emerged as the 
core national security question facing the United States. I think the moment where US instability was really on full display was obviously the the, the January 6th uh, riots at the Capitol. What what was going through your mind when when you saw that? And you know, another recent guest to um, one decision, uh, Secretary Pompeo, he he argued that January sixth was was an example of America having a a peaceful transition of power because in the end the pres the, the election was certified despite the attack on on the Capitol. I mean, what? Well, please, he knows better than that. He knows better than that. What's frightening about January 6th both is what happened and what almost happened. What happened was awful. And then it was way too close for comfort. If Vice President Pence had behaved differently, if a couple of the secretaries of state around the country had acted differently, uh, it was a very close run thing. So no one should be sanguine about what what happened. So yes, it in the end, it turned out all right in the sense that it the sedition didn't succeed. The election was certified. Uh, and subsequently, a lot of those involved have uh, faced legal consequences. But no, no one should be sanguine and say, oh, we don't have to worry. The, you know, the system worked out just fine. It was a close run thing. And we'll see what happens the next time there's a disputed election or a major candidate who rejects the norms of American politics and charges voter fraud when there wasn't uh, and refuses to uh, go along with the electoral process. So we're not out of the woods. And I take it as a, at all as a uh, signal that we ought to look hard at how this could have happened because January 6th was as much much a consequence of, of other problems and that we ought to address the root causes. And again, that's why I wrote a book, uh, The Bill of Obligations, where I talk about things like teaching civics in our schools, promoting national service, giving young people and others the ability to deal with this flood of misinformation. We have got to strengthen the, the fabric of democracy. We've got to strengthen the capacity of citizens to sustain a democracy. That, to me, is the, uh, the lesson of, of the last few years. And what do you think it means that America's democracy was so closely imperiled on that day and how that was seen overseas? And at the start of this conversation, we we talked about how so many countries around the world are not democracies, are not countries that share American values. Do you think the US has, has failed to sell democracy uh, to the world? And uh, one final sort of angle on this is... You know, is democracy even on its way out? Because, you know, post-COVID, we saw so many governments um, really cracking down on civil liberties, um, you know, in the name of national security, in a name to impose sweeping restrictions on everyday civil liberties. I mean, we've had the, the British government implementing legislation that curtails a lot of our right to protest. We are seeing in Israel right now the Netanyahu government trying to crack down and curb the power of the courts. I mean, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, this is an era of democratic backsliding, to use the term of art. Uh, You mentioned Israel, the threat to the judiciary in Mexico. We're seeing a threat to the entity that oversees the electoral process. Uh, In India, we're seeing the emergence of an illiberal democracy there, challenging uh, the media 
uh, in the United States, we've, we've seen many signs of it. We've, we've, we've talked about it. What's interesting in Brazil, in large part because of the judiciary, the system seems to have uh, held. But yeah, the lesson I take from this around the world is this is a tough time for democracy. And if, if one looks at the ratings of democracy in places like Freedom House, the facts support that. Uh, the world is less democratic, less open, less free today than it was, say, 20-odd uh, years ago. And you know, I think there's lots of reasons why. These have been tough economic times for some people. Then that, that's fuel for populists. People are so, you know, younger people in particular look at the government and they say, well, in the last few years, it hasn't done anything for me. So, you know, it's not exactly a historic perspective, but that's the perspective that certain people bring to it. Again, we don't teach these issues terribly uh, well. I think the media ecosystem has made it far more difficult to uh, conduct a, a, a democracy. So, I mean, it's a, it's a long list of um, explanations. So, yeah, democracy is under enormous pressure in the United States and elsewhere. And you were asking me before about aid. We can have all the aid dollars in the world, but the most effective tool we have for promoting democracy is the example of American democracy. And if American democracy is seen to be appealing, if it's seen to deliver higher living standards, freedoms to the American people, then the rest of the world will say, hey, that looks pretty good. Why don't we get some of that? And if American democracy is seen as uh, failing to uh, meet its domestic challenges, whether they're fentanyl or crime, uh, or uh, a border that, that's out of control, or there's riots, um, people will look at American democracy and say, we want no part of that. I'll be honest with you, I hate it when I see Chinese television showing scenes from things like January 6th and using that as a rationale or justification for China being repressive. Because it gives them, it gives the authorities there a chance to equate democracy with anarchy. So, We've got to show, you know, for ourselves, we've got to show that democracy delivers. And if we want democracy to have a chance elsewhere, we've got to show that democracy delivers here. And in recent years, we've come up short. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.